have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 23. That's where we're going to be. Um, If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is James. I'm on staff here at the church. Now, um, when I was in junior high, uh, we were playing dodgeball at youth group one night, and somebody threw ball at me and I I caught it, but as I caught it, I was falling backwards. So I put out my right arm to brace myself for when I fell. And as soon as I hit the ground, that was the most intense pain I had ever felt in my life. uh, Because the way I fell, I had separated my shoulder. My shoulder kind of came out of its socket, um, which just kind of ruined my evening a little bit. And after that, my shoulder was never the same. Uh, I I separated my shoulder skimboarding. I did it on a slip and slide. I did it jumping into a pool, playing tennis, and one time taking a nap. That one was a really great way to wake up to. But that was the most pain I ever felt. Now, I want you to just take a second and think, like, what's the most intense pain that you've ever felt? Now, for some of the the ladies in here, you're going to go, easy, labor and delivery. You're just like, hands down. I think that's the equivalent to when a man gets a cold, about the same level of pain uh, there. But maybe for you, you're going, I broke a bone. I sprained something. I had an intense infection. Maybe you had kidney stones. And whenever you're in a lot of pain, here's, here's the thing, you're not overly conversive, are you? Like no, no woman in the midst of labor like looks over to the nurse and goes, so tell me about yourself. What makes you, you? Um, when I would separate my shoulder, I wouldn't be like, hey, let's, let's go grab coffee. This, I'll, I'll deal with it later. Like here's the thing, pain, it kind of consumes your mind. It, it, it draws and demands your focus. And when you're in great pain, like maybe you've had a migraine before. It's like you don't want to talk. You don't even want to think. And so when you have to, it's like you choose your words carefully. Um, You you only say what needs to be said. Now, sometimes we describe our pain as excruciating pain. And maybe you don't know kind of the, the etymology, the history of that word. That, that word, that excruciating, it means out of the suffering on the cross. Like it, it was a word they came up with to discover the pain of, of the, or uh, uh, describe the pain of the cross. Now the cross was a Roman execution tool. They'd perfected it for maximum pain, shame, and humiliation. And almost any modern form of capital punishment, we'd go, that's very humane compared to the cross. And while Jesus is suffering on the cross, you see, he says some words. He speaks to the people, those around him. And as we consider the pain that Jesus must have been in on the cross, not, not just the fact that he's been nailed to the cross, but the, like Greg did a good job last week, especially as he led into communion, kind of describing what would take place before he even got to the cross, the flogging and how brutal it was. And so like, you're in incredible pain And so what I want us to understand is that no words that would be said by a person on the cross are really going to be superfluous. They're not going to be unnecessary, that that the words that are said are going to carry meaning for all those who hear them. And because Luke wrote down some of the things that Jesus said on the cross, we have the opportunity to hear them. And so after enduring his trial and the brutal flogging, Jesus is led through the streets Um, of of Jerusalem to the place where he's going to be executed. And so we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. 
It says two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. And so what you would have is that um, Jesus would have to carry his crossbeam through Jerusalem to the place where he's going to be crucified. And Jesus has been beaten so badly that he's actually not able to carry it himself to that place. And you find Simon of Cyrene, um, Luke mentions him here in his gospel, has to help Jesus get the crossbeam to the place of the skull. And so the crossbeam's put down on the ground and the soldiers would probably push Jesus down onto the ground. They would take one arm, they would stretch it out. A soldier would feel for the soft spot on Jesus' wrist, put a spike there and drive it through his wrist into the wood. Then they'd repeat it on the other side. And then two soldiers would take the crossbeam and Jesus and they would hoist it up and there was a pole already in the ground and they would fix that crossbeam into a spot on that pole. They would secure it there, take Jesus' feet, put one on top of the other and drive a spike through his feet, securing him to the cross. And so Jesus hangs in the hot Palestinian sun, but it's not just the heat of the sun that Jesus is going to be feeling. He's feeling the scorn, the mocks, the taunts, of the crowd. Now, death by crucifixion is a slow, desperate kind of death. Like people would hang on the cross three, four days, maybe more before they died. Um, as, as Christians throughout history, we've loved to make art out of the cross. We've liked to put the, like depict Jesus on the cross. You see it in paintings, but C.S. Lewis says that actually didn't start happening until Anybody who'd actually seen a real crucifixion had died. Like they, they would go, like, we're not making art out of this. It wasn't until after those people had passed away. Now, when we're in pain, um, we can be pretty selfish. We kind of get a little bit self-centered because, again, we're going like, woe is me. Do you understand what I'm going through? And you could understand that somebody on a cross would be pretty self-centered, that they would be thinking about themselves and the pain that they're in. But Jesus... He's thinking about others. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, the, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, those there, they know what's like physically happening in this moment, that they've taken a man, they've nailed him to the cross, and he's going to suffer for quite a while as he dies. They, they're aware of what's going on there, but they don't understand the greater realities of what's taking place. The things that would be taking place behind the scenes, they don't know who they've actually taken and nailed to the cross, that this is the holy and righteous one, the Messiah, the son of God. Because if they were aware of like who they were putting on a cross, they would reevaluate their decision. Like you're not gonna take the son of God and nail him to a cross. And so this is why Jesus is going like, they're unaware of what they are doing. They don't know the reality or the gravity of their sin. Now, for, for, for a simple definition, let's just say this. Sin is violating God's law. So we, we sin when we don't do the things that we know that God tells us to do or wants us to do. We also sin when we do the things that God doesn't want us to do. John Stott, he, he puts it this way. Sin is, is when we... Um, substitute ourselves for God. And so what he's saying is this, 
God lays out in his word, I mean, if we study it, you, you get a pretty clear idea of the things God wants us to do, the things that God doesn't want us to do. But we look at these things that God might want us to do, and we go, mm, I don't really like that command. I think I actually know better how to do things in this area of life than you do, God. So I'm going to be God in this area of my life. I'm going to call the shots here because, you know, I, I, I think I know better. Now, my, my daughter, Jane, um, she's, she's five. She loves to play in the dirt. And so she'll get out there and she's playing in the dirt and she'll find um, the, the, those potato bugs or those, I think they're called pill bugs. And she'll pick them up and she'll like cuddle them and she'll carry them around. And she's going, he's so cute. I'm like, put those down. I'm not afraid of bugs, but I'm like, you're gonna touch me later. I don't want bug hands all over me. But she's like, it's cute. It's, it's harmless, and she treats it like a pet. She'll build a little house for it outside. I'm like, outside's fine. Don't bring that thing into the house. Um, and she's just going, like, it's, it's cute. And, and this is the way we can approach our sins sometimes. We, we treat it like it's a cute pet. It's harmless. It's innocent. Look, look, look how, how cute and sweet it is. And we, we can get comfortable with sin in our lives that we're like, it's not causing any harm. But in reality, sin is, this, is something that is, is, is deadly. And when it comes to our sin, again, we often think it's, it's little. It's not that big of a deal. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to do any um, magic tricks here this morning, so don't worry. Um, simple illustration. I'm not much of a magician. Um, but imagine that this balloon, it, just, it, it falling straight down, is the course that God wants your life to take that it's just like, it's gonna fall straight down. We're staying on the straight and narrow path. This is what God wants us to do, to stay on that path. But here's what we do. We look at our sin and we go, okay, it's not that big of a deal. Like when I sin, it's just, it's a little, a little tap off of the path God wants me to be on. But I mean, it, it kind of corrects and it, it keeps going straight down. Now for, for some sins we go, okay, yeah, they're, they're major sins. Like if I, if I murder somebody, yeah, that's like, that's off the path. If I, if I commit adultery, yeah, that's really off the path. If I steal something that's worth a lot of money, yeah, that's, that's really off the path. But for most of the part, it's just like, it's a little tap. It, it's not a big deal. Just, just a, a small tap, but it keeps resuming the direction it's supposed to go. And we think of our sin as being minute, as harmless, that, that our pride is, is maybe just a little tap. Our, our greed, just a little tap. Our lust, just a little tap. Our, our, our anger, our bitterness, whatever you want to go, we're going, it's not causing that much harm. That is just a little small thing. But sin, we have to understand, it's always relational in nature. And what I mean is this, when we sin, it's not that we just sin and it's just kind of this, this impersonal thing that's out there. When I sin, I sin against God. When I sin, I, I, there's a pretty good chance I'm sinning against another person. And here's the thing, we don't see the chain reaction that our sin might set into motion. Again, we go just a little tap, but it, it, it self-corrects. It, it keeps going. And so here's what we don't see is when I do this, I don't see other people's lives that this might kind of nudge into in the way it's affecting their lives and might be throwing things off course. And go, again, we go, our, our sin is little, it's harmless. And so what I'm saying is we don't understand the consequences of our sin. You, you don't see how it all plays out. 
And, and God, he says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you deserve death. And we're going, man, God, you're a buzzkill. That's a little heavy, don't you think? Like death? It's, it's, it's just little, it's just harmless. It's just a little bit of fun. But if we could see the full consequences of what we do and why God takes the sin so much serious, ser- seriously, like we would, we would understand why he's so serious about sin if we could see and understand what God sees. Like when we sin, again, we, we sin against God, we sin against others. And so sin devalues God. It's like if God's like, do this, and I'm like, no, I think I'm gonna do this. I'm saying to God, I don't think you're that good. I don't think you're that loving. I don't think you're that wise. I think I'm better in this area than you are. When I, I sin against others, this is a person that God has created. This is a person that God loves. This is a person that God values. And I'm devaluing that person and treating them that way. And God, again, he sees the chain reaction that our sins set into motion. And too often it's, it's too late that we understand the chain reaction that was set off by our sin. Like, you hear those stories where somebody takes their own life or stories like what happened down in Nashville this past week and we go, why, why, why did this happen? And maybe you kind of look back and you find out this person has been bullied. This person has been mistreated for year after year after year and their bully just goes, it was just a little fun. I, th- I thought it was harmless and they didn't see kind of the consequences of what they were doing. They couldn't understand it. And if we could see what God could see, we would realize that we are far less innocent in the sin thing than we may think we are. We would understand that we're guilty of some serious crimes against God and others, and we would understand why, why God goes, like the wages of sin is death. Now, again, God, God's saying, like, you, you deserve punishment for these things, but look at, look at Jesus on the cross. Look how he responds to those gathered there. He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't go, you'll never experience God's love. He doesn't go, you just wait until I tell my father about this. Like he's not doing any of that. He pleads with his father to forgive those who condemn him, who spit on him, who mock him, who taunt him. He asks God to forgive those who've nailed him to a cross and then they, they, they gamble for his clothing as he dies right in front of him. And reading about Jesus' crucifixion, here's the thing, because I, I, there's times where I reflect on it, I think about it, and it's like I get angry at these people who do it. Like I, I can get angry at the, 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 the priests, I can get angry at the Romans. I'm like, how could you do this? But Jesus isn't there with any resentment towards his murderers. He's asking God to forgive those who don't deserve it. And it's easy to go, I can't believe he's doing that for them. But again, if we understand the consequences of what's going on or our actions, we should go, I can't believe he's willing to do that for us. And what Jesus was enduring on the cross is about is, is what's going to make that forgiveness possible. And so let's keep going. Luke chapter 23, verse 38. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? 
We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it was customary for the charges against a person who's being crucified to be kind of written and displayed above the person so that anybody who walks by can see this is why the person's being crucified. And so if I don't want to end up on a cross like that guy, I better not do what that guy did. And so Jesus is crucified on political grounds because he's claimed to be a king. And so Pilate has a sign, this is the king of the Jews. And it's meant to be a joke, but there's truth in it, that Jesus is a king. And according to Matthew's gospel, you might be going, ah, I found an inconsistency. I'm going to disprove the Bible. Like Matthew's gospel says both thieves or criminals are mocking Jesus in the beginning. But Luke goes, one actually starts to defend him. And so what we actually see is one's changed his mind about Jesus. He's seen how Jesus is, is behaving, what he's doing on the cross, and he asks Jesus to forgive him and remember him when he enters his kingdom. And so the words to Jesus are both a plea and a confession of faith. And Jesus says to him that he's going, or Jesus says he's going to be in paradise that day. Now in the New Testament, paradise is kind of this place of bliss between death and resurrection. Some scholars are going like, it's basically synonymous with heaven. But in the Greek Old Testament, if you look up that word paradise, it it talks about a garden or a forest. And that's the word, paradise is the word that is used in referring to the Garden of Eden. And if you don't know what that is, like when God created um, the world and in the beginning, he has this special relationship with humanity in the Garden of Eden that Genesis talks about that Adam and Eve could hear God walking through the garden in, in the cool of the day. And it's like those words just are kind of saying, man, there's an intimate relationship there with God. And in the Garden of Eden, humanity's relationship with God was the best it's ever been. It has not gotten better since then because sin entered the picture that Adam and Eve thought they knew the the, the way to happiness better than what God told them. And since that, sin has, has, has caused distance in our relationship with God. And by using the word paradise, here's what I believe Jesus is saying to us is that we can now go back to what it was like in the beginning. That, that, that the relationship with God, it can be the way that God intended it to be. The intimate personal friendliness that humanity had with God before sin entered the picture, that, that's possible again. Now, I, I grew up going to Canoe Cove Christian Camp on PEI um, every summer. And it was like the highlight of my summer, being out there for at least one week. As I got older, I would go and counsel for quite a few weeks uh, in the summer. Now, after Shannon and I got married that summer, uh, we, we were the managers there. And so we lived at Canoe Cove Christian Camp for about four months. And it's a beautiful property, and I was excited about it. But here's the thing. When there weren't camps going on, nobody else was there. And there were days where Shannon would go into work and I would be left on the property all alone. And I I was going like, it's a beautiful property, but it was what taught me is like, this this place is special because of the people who are there. Like sometimes people say in reference to, to here, it's like, I just love the feeling of this room. And it's like, I get it. 
but I spend a lot of time here throughout the week with nobody else in this room. And it's just like, it's just a room. It's, it's, it's the people who are here that make it special. And, and Jesus is saying to the thief, you are going to be with me in paradise. And so, and so here's the thing. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Heaven is so good because God's presence permeates it. And again, back to C.S. Lewis, he's like my favorite guy, but he, he's like, anybody who hates God and doesn't like God, they're not really gonna enjoy heaven because like heaven is all about God. It's all about Jesus. Now, when the thief asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, notice that Jesus doesn't go, it might be possible. We'll see how this all pans out. Like Jesus tells him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's, it's, it's full assurance. It's confidence. It's a promise. And so here's what we see. Close relationship with God is possible again. Like the king knows the way to the kingdom. He shows the way. He makes the way. Now Luke chapter 23 in verse 44 through 46 it says, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Now, after Jesus dies on the cross, his body is taken down and is put into a tomb that's never been used. Now, every, every day we can go to websites and we can read obituaries. We, we see that people pass away every day, but here's not something that happens every day. The sun doesn't stop shining for three hours leading up to somebody's death. And as to what this darkness means, scholars debate it. Like some say it's like it represents God's wrath being poured out on Jesus for humanity's sin. Others go, no, it's actually demonstrating God's displeasure with humanity for crucifying um, his son. But, but regardless, the darkness and the timing of it, it tells us that there's something significant happening in the death of Jesus. Like if you look at Luke, he says it's at 3 p.m., that Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and he dies at 3 p.m. In other gospels, you see that the guards go to Pilate and they go, Jesus has died. And Pilate's like, he's died so soon? Like, that was quick. That, that as, as we saw earlier, people would hang on the cross for days on end before they would die. It was meant to be drawn out. That the other criminals have to have their legs broken so they can't, take a breath and keep on living. But Jesus dies in six hours, which was pretty quick on the cross. And here's what we see, is that Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. Jesus chose to die in this moment. And the timing is significant. In the Jewish tradition of sacrificial offerings, it was at 3 p.m. when the final sacrifice for sin would be made for the day in the temple and in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Christ loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So the, the Jewish religious leaders, Pilate, the soldiers, they didn't kill Jesus. Jesus offered up his life at that time for us. He willingly gave it up as a sacrifice. He handed his life over to his father and became the final and perfect sacrifice for sin 
for all time. And, and so we can look at the cross and we should go, it, it's wrong. It, it's tragic. But we should also look at the cross and go, it's an offering. It's an offering for sin. It is the offering for sin. That no more offerings need to be made. That's the ultimate and final sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28, that's what the, the, the author says. is like, because of what Jesus has done, he was the, the final sacrifice of the day. He was the final sacrifice for human sin. Now we don't have to offer any more sacrifices. Now, Luke also says the curtains are, are, are ripped or torn. And that probably doesn't mean a lot to us necessarily. Like, you might go, my kids tear the curtains all the time. It just happens. But these aren't curtains that you go to Ikea and purchase. Like, these are 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. The thickness of the, the curtain is probably about my palm. And so it, it, it's massive. And there's a purpose to this curtain. That Imagine this is the curtain. Like, if this is the temple, you guys are cool in here. But to go back there, you can't go back there behind that curtain because that's where God's presence dwells in the holy of holies. And one guy could go behind the curtain one day a year, the high priest on the day of atonement to offer um, uh, a sacrifice for the sins of the people to intercede. But for the most part, like you go back behind the curtain in the temple, it's lights out because sinful humanity can't come into the presence of a holy God. But Matthew's gospel, Luke doesn't include it, but he, he says actually the curtain's ripped from the middle at the top down. That is like God himself grabbed that curtain and ripped it open. And when that curtain is torn down, what was laid bare for every human eye to see? It was the holy of holies. It was the sanctuary where God's pleasant presence dwelt that anyone could see it. And this is symbolic of Christ opening the way directly to God for all who would believe. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And so I said, John Stott says, sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. And at the cross, Jesus endures God's wrath for human sin so that we wouldn't have to. And because he did this, because he suffered the wrath of God. We now have an option that we don't have to suffer the wrath of God for sin. Now, I want to ask you, when God offers the sacrifice for sin on your behalf, what does that tell you about the way he feels towards you? When God becomes the sacrifice for your sin, what does that tell you about the sufficiency of that sacrifice? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, says, with one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so on the cross, what we should see is God offering himself for sinful humanity. And Herman Bavinck in his book, The Wonderful Works of God, he, he says this, on the cross, God lays aside his wrath, changes his disposition towards the sinner, forgives the transgressions, and admits him again to his presence and fellowship. And the forgiveness is so perfect that it can be called a blotting out, or his casting of the sins into the depths of the sea. The atonement obliterates the sins so completely that it is as if they were never committed. It banishes wrath and causes God's face to shine upon his people in fatherly favor and good will. Like this is what the cross accomplishes for those who believe. 
Now, I've said this before, but like, you know that you are more than just a physical body, right? Like, you know that what makes you you is more than organic material. That your awareness, your consciousness, your mind, you know that's more than just like signals firing around in some gray matter up here. There's something more that this idea that you will live 70 to 90 years, you will breathe your last, your physical body will die, and you will cease to exist. Like deep inside you're going, that doesn't match with what I feel. Like, I feel like that, that there's something more. There's, there's, scripture would say eternity. God has put eternity into you. And that you are more than just flesh and bones, but you have a spirit created by God, meant to be in relationship with him forever. But we do die because of sin. And I want to ask you this question, like, what do you expect to happen when you die? Now, I know this question makes some of us like uncomfortable. We're like, I don't really want to think about that. But life will put it in your face at some point. Like there's people in this church who've had to sit with a loved one when the doctor says there's nothing more we can do. It's time for you to get your affairs in order. I mean, some of us are like, I'm going to try and beat death as long as I can. And so we we exercise and we eat healthy and we take supplements and we, we sleep 12 hours a night and then we take a, an afternoon nap and we're like, I'm gonna live forever, die trying. And you always die trying. Like nobody beats death. And it, it, it might scare you because you, you look at death and you, you see how powerless you actually are in the face of it because you're wondering what is waiting for me on the other side of this life? What is, what is there? The first uh, bedtime prayers that a lot of parents teach their, their kids goes like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And then some parents add this exciting, encouraging, chipper line. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And like the kids probably land there like, you're saying there's a chance I'm not gonna make it through this? It's like, mm, mwah, sweet dreams. Um, but Jewish parents, they would actually kind of do something similar with their kids back in Jesus' day. They would teach them this this verse at night. They would pray the words of Psalm 31.5. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. And as parents were tucking their children into bed, each each child would speak these words of trust in the Lord. And there's a good chance that Jesus was actually taught these words by Mary and Joseph when he was a child. And some 30 years later, it's the last thing he says before he dies that Jesus reaches the culmination of his mission to seek and save the lost. And with his dying breath, his final words were these words that he had learned as a child, but he offers a slight variation. He says, Father, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. What was waiting for Jesus on the other side? It wasn't what, it was who. Jesus knew who he was going to that his spirit would return to the presence of God the Father. And again, the cross is brutal. It's tragic. But Jesus dies beautifully on the cross. He, He dies like a child falling asleep in their father's arms. He shows us how to die. And he knows that on the other side of death, his father is there with open arms waiting to receive him. That he knew he was safe 
And this is the type of trust that we're called to. And this is how we as Christians can die well. We know that our Father is waiting to receive us. And so who have you entrusted your spirit to? Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he points out that the criminals crucified on either side of Jesus show two possible responses to him. The first one mocks Jesus' powerlessness, a Messiah who cannot save himself. And the other criminal recognizes a different kind of power. In faith, he asks Jesus to remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in a sense, here's, here's what Yancey says. These two criminals that are paired side by side, they present the choice that every person has to decide about the cross. And it's, it's the choice that you actually have to decide about the cross. Do we look at the cross of Christ as proof of God's powerlessness or as a proof of God's love? And from his powerless position on a cross, a, a criminal, he finds eternal life, that free gift. What could he do to earn it? Nothing. His, his hands were literally tied, pinned. What did he do to deserve it? Not much. He's, he's a criminal being crucified for crimes. But yet, he finds life. What did he do? He simply changed his mind about who Jesus was and he put his trust in him, faith in him. If you want the assurance of whatever may come, if you want to know who is waiting to receive you with open arms, here's what God asks of you. Faith, trust. And if you would like to trust in Jesus' sacrifice to find that life, you can do that today. We always tell you, speak to myself or Greg or fill out a connect card. Now, I, I understand this, that a lot of us, we tend to, tend to minimize our sins. We go, they're small. They're not that big of a deal. But some of us are going, no, why, you don't know the things I've done. And when you think about it, you're going, I'm not worthy to receive eternal life. But look at who is at the cross. They beat Jesus to the point of death. They crucify him, they spit on him, they laugh in his face, they mock him as he dies. In the face of all of that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And if Jesus Christ could forgive those people in that moment, he can forgive you. You're right, you're not worthy, but none of us are worthy, that we've all sinned. And this is the beauty of God's grace. It's that it's an undeserved gift. And this is why we say the gospel is good news.